0: Well hello. Welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire. Have you ever seen images of abandoned towns and wondered what happened? Sometimes their history is so dark it is better left forgotten. We present to you two dark stories in this episode centered around the theme of lost villages. Our first story tells the tale of a young journalist who after receiving a mysterious letter travels to an unknown region where he stumbles upon a village whose inhabitants' fate is more haunting than he originally believed. We present to you, The Grey Village. It has been over four decades since my unfortunate visit to the Grey Village. And though it happened all those years ago, I continue to lie awake at night with the images of the villagers on my mind and the knowledge of their fate. So haunting it has been, I often wonder just how dramatically the brief interaction has changed my life. It was all due to a letter from Mr. Winterfeld that brought me to that unfortunate region. In my youth, I was something of a journalist, and while most of my articles I would write never made the front pages, it was my stories pertaining to two local inventors that caught the attention of one Mr. Winterfeld. Two weeks after the publication of the articles, I received a letter from Mr. Winterfeld, explaining that he was something of an inventor himself, and urged me to visit his estate in the hope that I would also publish a piece on his new device. I was initially skeptical, as I had never heard of the gentleman before, and furthermore, according to the return address, he was located on the other side of the country. How has he gotten a hold of my writings? However, once the money transfer the letter promised came through, I wrote back saying I'd be more than interested in what he had, then bought a train ticket for the next morning. The train ride itself was rather pleasant. Five days of open country to watch, with intermittent interruptions of small stations. But we would drop off more passengers than pick up. A few days into the trip, the train was virtually empty, save myself and an elderly lady sitting a few rows back. I didn't mind, really, the absence of people, for I had my books and window, where I witnessed the changing landscape from dense green forest to grassy plains to barren desert. Twice a day, the porter would come down the aisle selling food, and I would eat my sandwich and drink my coffee while watching the world outside change. Five days after my departure, we arrived at the station. After collecting my luggage, I hailed a cab, handed the driver the address to the Winterfield estate, and settled in for the last remaining part of my journey. As the cab made its way down the narrow gravel drive, I was shocked by the estate. Not its size, mind you, though the house was quite large, nearly half an acre itself, designed in the old Gothic style, with towers and columns growing or pluming towards the sky, but how much such immense wealth had been kept secret from the rest of the country when we pulled into the front entrance a tall slim gentleman wearing a freshly pressed suit with arms tucked neatly behind him stood atop the stairs with three servants off to a side when i exited the cab the tall gentleman swiftly descended the stairs with an outstretched hand introducing himself this of course was mr Winterfell. After short greeting and few pleasantries, he motioned to the servants to grab my luggage, and we made our way to the top of the stairs and into the grand hall, where another servant took my hat and coat. Mr. Winterfeld then directed me towards an open door to our left, which, upon entering I noticed, a small room with two chairs, a table with scattered papers about it, and a fireplace with a huge flame already in it. We settled into the chairs, and after a servant brought in a platter of tea and other refreshments, I inquired as to what this new device I was commissioned to write about. Mr. Winterfell proceeded to tell me he had created a machine that would produce a printed copy of whatever someone would say into the receiver. However, he informed me, he was still working out some of the kinks. Here he pointed at the table and explained that those were the test pages, but as one could see, the machine had a tendency to skip and at times spelling and sentence structure would be lost, turning out a page of gargled mess. I grew excited, and I asked if I could see how the machine worked, regardless of any grammatical errors. Alas, I could not. But he was giving a public demonstration in three days' time, and hence, that was the reason why he had requested my presence and talent. At this point, deep in the house at Bellrong, Mr. Winterfeld rose and led me to the dining room. As we ate, he told me he had business in the next town over, and I was more than welcome to join him as he was aware I'd never been in that part of the region before, and he thought I might enjoy it. I thanked him heartily, but suggested that we meet later in town for an early supper. After spending five days on a train, I was eager to stretch my legs and take in some of the fresh air. Mr. Winterfell thought that was a fine idea. He told me the town was only a few miles away, as well as the best route to take. We finished eating, and Mr. Winterfell took his leave. He had some letters to attend to, which will take up the rest of his evening but I should make myself at home, and if I need anything at all, please ask one of the servants. I bade him good night and reiterated our plans to meet the next afternoon for dinner. Shortly thereafter, I made my way to the room, and quickly fell asleep in the soft bed. I rose early the next morning, and made my way to the Great Hall, where I was informed by the servant that took my hat and coat that Mr. Winterfield had already left, but there was breakfast waiting for me in the garden, should I feel like eating. After grabbing a cup of coffee and some plain toast, I descend the stairs of the main entry and down the road I was suggested to take. It was a beautiful morning, excellent weather for a long, pleasant walk to shake off almost week of traveling on train. Knowing I had plenty of time before I was expected to meet Mr. Winterfield, I stopped here and there to pick a flower, to inspect any plants of interest, or to watch any curious animals that wandered into my view before their anxiety chased them off. I walked for some time, either going too fast or too slow, when I noticed, on the horizon, a spire of a church. As I got closer, I could see other structures surrounding the church. This must be the town, I thought, and began towards it. It wasn't until I had almost reached the town that I noticed the absence of people and the eeriness of the silence. Here and there, vendor carts lined the streets, some with blackened food, others with articles of clothing barely holding their form and everything was covered in a thin gray dust. I walked down the streets, leaving clear footprints in the gray while picking up small plumes of dust with each step. I called out several times, hoping someone would hear me, that they would make their presence known to shatter this alone feeling and answer my questions, but I could find no one in town. Growing anxious, I decided to peer into one of the windows of a house. I approached the nearest house I could find and pulled out my handkerchief and began to wipe away some of the gray dust. No sooner had I begun when I startled back, nearly losing my footing. In the half-clean window I could see a face of an elderly gentleman with white, wild hair, dressed in a style I had never seen before. And it also looked like his hand was pressed against the glass. I could see the mouth moving on the face as though crying out and his hand slapping against the window. However, neither the face nor the hand made any noise at all. I stepped closer and waved my hand in front of the face behind the glass but reacted the face did not. It just kept on silently screaming and banging against the window. I stepped back in the street and looked around. I could see other movement coming from the windows all around me, all silently screaming or pressed against the glass, crying, some with their hands pressed together as though pleading. In a panic, I backed up hastily and began to run, each step kicking up more and more gray dust as the street was thick with gray mist. I looked behind me and saw figures moving towards me through the mists, gaining on me, coming closer and closer. While all around me, I was being watched by eyes behind glass set in grey buildings. It was getting harder and harder to breathe. I stumbled a bit more before finding my footing and raced out of town. In a few minutes, I was cutting across the field, heading towards the main road I was on earlier. I stopped to catch my breath and saw coming towards me a car. I stepped to the roadway to slow it down and hoped the driver would take me far from here. The car came to a screeching halt, almost hitting me. I approached the passenger side and looked inside only to see Mr. Winterfield behind the wheel. I quickly got into the car, begging him to drive away, but he sat there amazed and asked where i had been and why I was in such a hysterical state. I again begged him to drive, and after looking at me for a few moments, he nodded and drove us back to his estate. Shortly, we were making our way down the narrow drive to the front entrance. I was quickly ushered into the small room with the chairs and fireplace, wrapped in a blanket and handed a large half glass filled with brandy. Mr. Winterfield sat in the other chair watching me. Several minutes and several large sips of brandy later I was beginning to gain some control back. Mr. Winterfield must have noticed the change in my disposition as well as he sat forward in his chair and again asked me what would put me into such a state. I was fearful of telling the truth, should he think me mad, but after some time I decided to tell him what I had witnessed. He listened intently and didn't say a word, when I finished my story he leaned back in his chair and said, I see. I asked if he knew anything that could have explained what I saw, he thought for some time, staring off towards the wall and the pages on the table, finally he looked at me and said, yes, to which he began, it has to have been over 200 years ago I would think, when this had happened. There used to be a village where you found your great village. The residents called it Village of It was a bustling village in its day. People would travel for miles around to visit their market square and buy produce and pursue their latest fashion. There was a rather famous tailor that lived there at the time, you see, and it wasn't uncommon for the wealthy to seek him out and his advice. Then, from the countryside, a sickness came and entered the village, causing panic. Many people got sick as the disease passed from person to person. Fearing a larger outbreak, the citizens of the surrounding areas tried to close off the village, but to little avail. And when they began to grow sick, they gathered surrounding the village. Unfortunately, in their fear, they forced their residents of Village appear into their homes and locked them in. While no one knows how it began, at some point in the night, the town was set afire, with the residents still locked in their homes. Local legend had the people of the surrounding areas watched as the village burned and the people who lived in the village pleaded with them from their windows of their homes. It was such a tragedy. Mr. Winterfield trailed off and fell silent. I pulled the blanket tighter around me and thought about the faces staring back at me. At length, Mr. Winterfield broke the silence, asking me to retire to my room for rest and that he would drive me to town the day of the demonstration. I spent the rest of the night tossing and turning. On the day of the demonstration, I helped move the device into Mr. Winterfield's car. We took the same route as two days prior. It wasn't too long before I reached the field in which the old gray village stood, but all there was now was a large patch of empty, barren land. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. Our second dark story is about a village who is was visited by four hooded figures. When the villagers began to notice a strange phenomenon happening, they see only one way to subdue what the hooded figures had brought them. We present to you, the Walled People. Not too far from here, maybe 40 or 50 miles away, there used to be a village with a robust community. In fact, each year they would play host to a series of festivals, which would include gardening, dancing, and even a ball game they called Hands Off, where lines of players would stand opposite each other, volleying a rubber ball back and forth, using any body parts they could except their hands. The village was surrounded by a lush countryside with trees and green meadows, but that was a long time ago, before the strangers in the black robes showed up, before they built the wall to close themselves in. The village was originally founded in 1821, with the intent of being a trading post. However, very few traders ventured towards the village and it was soon abandoned. But then, about three decades later, the town was rediscovered, rebuilt, and repurposed. Families began to move in and set up shops. Children were born and grew up, playing in the same streets as their parents did, as the generations moved on. The community gathered together to design and open their first garden. And what started as a hobby quickly became an obsession, with each family trying to outdo the others. It was all in good humor, of course, but by the turn of the century, travelers would come from miles around to see the cascade of colors dripping from the houses and lining the roads. The dance hall was continually packed when the weather broke and the evenings were cool. And as some of the children grew up and moved away, they consoled each other, promising that their children would soon be back once they remembered that the village was the true home. On a Sunday afternoon, the wife of Mr. Tanner died. She had been sick for some time, and though they sent away for a doctor, they knew it would all be in vain. A few days later, Mr. Tanner followed her, leaving the house at the end of the street empty, where it sat for a year. No one really knows where they came from, but one day four individuals dressed in long, black robes with hoods covering their faces appeared in the village. The villagers watched with nervous curiosity as the four newcomers silently walked down the village road and entered the house previously occupied by the tanners. For several weeks the villagers neither saw nor heard from their new neighbors, and at night no lights emanated from the windows. It was as though the house was still empty. Rumors began to swirl as to who they were, and some of the villagers wondered if they had seen anyone enter the house at all. Months passed, and still no sign of the hooded figures. The uneasiness that was initially there was being subdued, as the villagers began to wonder if maybe the hooded figures had left in the night a few weeks ago, and that is why they had never seen them. But still, they thought, why were they there to begin with? It was 10 months after the arrival of the four hooded figures when the villagers began to notice strange lights coming from within the Tanner house. At first it was a pulsing blue light, all day and all night. As the days went on, the blue would transform into red, and finally into green. Each time the light would pulsate, rhythmically. The villagers grew concerned, but all were too afraid to approach the house to investigate the cause of the changing light the villagers began leaving their houses less and less. The once robust village slowly began to grow more and more vacant, and when they did leave their house to collect firewood, food, or other resources, they would avoid the Tanner House altogether. If they did have to cross in front of the house, they would shield their eyes and hurry past, for the light had been growing stronger. Briefly putting aside their fare, the villagers decided to hold a community meeting in the dance hall in the hopes of finding a solution to the lights coming from the Tanner House, It took some time before the meeting came to order as the high anxiety and panic forced the villagers to argue and talk over each other, but as their nerves calmed and the familiarity of the sight of the other neighbors took hold, the hall grew quieter. One of the older members of the community stepped up to take charge and asked if anyone knew who the hooded figures were and what they were doing. The villagers looked around to each other, pleading in their minds that someone knew something, but all they were met with was shaking heads and people looking down at the floor. This lasted some minutes, until from the back a small voice said, I. It went unnoticed at first, but then the voice grew louder. Aye. The villagers turned to look towards the origin of the voice located in the back of the room. It was Sarah Shepherd, the teenage daughter of Oliver Shepherd. Well, the older gentleman who had taken charge said, Speak, my child, what do you know? Sarah took a deep breath looked around her at all the eyes watching her every move, and began. As to why they are here, and why they might have taken over the old town or place, I cannot say. Though I did witness something the other night. I was on my way to the well to fetch our water for the evening, as I tend to do. I want to cut across the courtyard, as we all have been doing, to avoid the house. But as I drew close, I felt a rumbling in my chest, almost like a wild beast's low growl. I wanted to ignore the feeling, to keep going towards the well, but I just couldn't. I stood there motionless. Soon I found myself walking towards the tanner house and seeing the bright changing colors. I felt like something was pulling me, tugging at me from the inside, controlling my every movement. I... I don't know what it was. The front door was wide open and the rumbling in my chest was growing louder and... I don't remember how but I found myself standing in the house in the doorway on the floor knelt the four hooded figures one opposite the other in the middle of them was a mirror which brought a beautiful light was pouring out of the light began to flicker the hooded figures began to chant in a language I had never heard before and then I saw I saw something begin to crawl out of the mirror and through the light and they were chanting louder and I could see long legs and a head coming out of the mirror and the light kept flickering and changing colors and then a body emerged from to the light and the creature was yelling and at least I think it was yelling and their chants grew more wild and light was flickering and changing colors and the creature who was hunched over with six legs was standing over the mirror and I'm looking at the creature and the creature looking back at me and it just went dark. Sarah stopped for a moment to wipe away the tears streaming down her face, then continued, I awoke outside the house in the street. I don't know what it was. The villagers inside the dance hall were silent, not knowing how to respond to the girl's story. Several of the villagers were rubbing religious symbols they kept around their neck or in their pockets. Sarah sank to the floor, covering her face. I think it is wise, one of the villagers said, that we pack what we need tonight and leave in the morning. Everyone else quickly agreed, and the small village community shuffled out of the dance hall back to their homes. However, they didn't get far, for as they exited the building, they were met with the hooded figures. The four strangers did not approach the group. They merely stood across the road from them with their hoods covering their faces. After some moments, the four hooded figures walked off and disappeared into the darkness. Upon their departure, the villagers quickly ran home to fulfill their plans on leaving the next morning, though as they arrived at their front door, they noticed strange symbols of crooked lines and circles scrawled across. They were now beyond terrified and securely latched the door once they were inside. No one really knows why, but when the next morning arrived, the villagers did not leave. There were rumors that a letter had made its way out of town, meant to a traveler passing through by one of the villagers. We are, the letter said, afraid to leave our homes. Each night, the four hooded figures patrol the streets, and every day more and more disturbing noises are coming from the Tanner house. We think we know what we need to do now. Whether or not the letter was ever replied to is not known. What well, is known that it was around this time that the wall began to be built a little at first, before jumping several feet a day. There is no gate in the wall leading to the village. The village is entirely closed by a brick wall. What ultimately happened to the villagers after that, no one knows, and no one ever heard from the villagers ever again. Some believe the villagers built the wall to keep whatever creature the hooded figures were conjuring inside from escaping into the surrounding countryside. People who have passed by the walled village, especially at night, have reportedly heard a low rumbling sound, and flickering lights coming from behind the walls. Well hello again. To show our appreciation for all the support you have shown, we have added a bonus story for this episode. We also want to let you know that if you are supporting the show, we are working on how to thank you especially with bonus episodes, or an advanced copy of our upcoming book of short stories. Whether you choose to support the show or not, we really want to thank you for listening and hopefully enjoying what we have presented. If you have any ideas for shows or themes for upcoming stories, please email us at opheliapublishing at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Heavenly Goat or Instagram at opheliapublishing. But for now, please enjoy our bonus story for our Tavern Tales collection. The Balmy Toad As anyone who has visited the establishment knows, the Balmy Toad Tavern and Inn is a hotbed for paranormal activity. Patrons, as well as former and current employees, tell stories of objects moving on their own, silverware vanishing only to reappear in another part of the restaurant, and reports of hearing people singing late at night after the bar is closed. While most of the activity that has been reported has been benign, during recent renovation, it seems as though the spirits have become more malicious. Carpenters quit their post after claiming they were violently pushed off the ladders. Nails have been reportedly thrown at people from unseen hands. In one incident, where painters showing up to resume their work one morning found all their paint pockets turned over and handprints painted across the newly installed doors. Though the restaurant had been empty all night, and nothing was caught on the surveillance system. All this has left the current owners confused as to what might be causing the activity because their restaurant had only been opened 10 years prior, and they decided to consult a local historian to get some answers. After a few weeks of research, the historian got back with their owners with their report. In 1912, there was a tavern also called the Balmy Toad that opened, though not where the new restaurant is currently located, or rather a few blocks away. The original establishment had a reputation of playing host to a series of unsavory individuals who'd use the credit bar to hide in while being pursued by law enforcement, but they may take advantage of one of the rooms to rent, which provided some privacy to plan and execute criminal activity. One of the notorious street gangs, who called themselves the Weeping Pious, because their main victims would be the religious tourists who flocked to the historical cathedral, would use the tavern to regroup after a night of petty thievery. However, in 1931, a fire ripped through the town, Wiping out not only the tavern, but the local government building where our records were stored. It was during the rebuilding process the original foundations for the balmy toad were lost, as the owner, upon being informed that it would be more lucrative to sell the property rather than rebuild, sold the lot to an investor, who then repurposed the land for commercial stores. By the 1970s, those stores had fallen into disuse and were demolished by the city in an empty lot for decades. It was during the road expansion project that the original foundation and the basement of the Balmy Toad were discovered and excavated. It had been widely believed that during the fire of 1931, there were no casualties, that anyone who was not assisting in putting out the fires had evacuated the town. But as they were clearing away the debris from the newly found basement, officials found remnants of work going on in the basement. Tools were discovered, as well as nails strewn about, as well as two bodies, their bones buried within the ash. It was when they looked at the door that somehow survived the destruction that gave them the most shock. Two pairs of very clear handprints were imprinted on the door, as though melting into the wood. Apparently they were day laborers who had been traveling through town looking for work that were hired, and they were pushing on the door trying to get out before the building above them collapsed, leaving only their handprints behind. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. We'll be releasing new dark stories every Monday, and we are sure you wouldn't want to miss out. If you like the stories and what we are doing here, please consider supporting the show with the links provided, or leave a tip if you like a particular episode. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Dark Stories from the Campfire.